Hello! Hello! And a spooky welcome to Liars League. Where writers write, actors read, the audience listens, and everybody wins. The witches are circling high above the phoenix, impatiently waiting their turn to fill up their broomsticks at the nearest petrol station. (laughs) A few of them are carrying uncovered cauldrons instead of appropriately warded jerry cans, and the hexes they're throwing at each other in the ill-tempered holding pattern of kicking off purple showers of sparks. So tonight's theme of magic and mayhem is pretty much a guarantee. And so it is with our story where we have ghosts, gods, magicians, and yes, both the dead and the undead, all to kick off your Halloween celebrations. We have six, six, six (laughs) tales of magic gone terribly wrong, or perhaps terribly right. We've sawn the evening into two, But don't worry, it all comes good in the end. Probably. Three shocking stories in the first half, and then an interval, where you can use your tabletop QR codes if they are still a thing. No, they're not still a thing anymore. You can go to the bar (laughs) to conjure up more drinks as you steal yourself for the utter mayhem of the infamous Liars League book quiz. And then finishing off with a tentacular threesome of terrifying tales. It is time to cast your own spells of enchantment over those electronic devices known as phones. Please, wave your wands and command silencio. If you have forgotten your wands... Or don't really see why magic systems should be based on Latin, or indeed Spanish, then you could try manually setting your phones to silent. It's boring, but it works. And now, sit back and enjoy as we bring you our first (coughs) magical story, (coughs) which will be The Fear by Emma Gray. Read by Lois Tucker. Emma is a Scottish author and journalist from Glasgow. She has been writing in Scots since she was a student at the University of Strathclyde, tipsily co-authoring poems with fellow writer Lorna Wallace, before moving on to write fiction in the language. She has published fiction and poetry in the UK and Ireland since 2014, in journals including The Honest Ulsterman, from Glasgow to Saturn, and The Open Mouse. Her first novel, Be Good to Your Mammy, was published by Unbound in August. Lois has done various bits and bobs, and will probably end up doing more. (laughs) Previous stuff includes penning and performing three solo shows, as her silent comedy alter ego, Lois of the Lane, and releasing the miscellaneous EP on. Lois!
The Fear by Emma Gray. We've all been there. A night on the tiles, dancing shoes on, tarted up like a Greg's donut at the front of the display. <laughs> and innocent enough, we swally. Or so you think. Then, a few hours later, your pounding head goes, What the fuck did you do last night? <laughs> the fear. It's a well-kenned phenomenon. But seriously, what could you really do and forget about it? It's been playing on a loop in my head all morning. I was at my pal, pal Jamie and his birds last night. It wasn't a big one. Three drinks max. Then I called the taxi home. Lasses can he be too careful and all that. Plus the tube's probably hoaching with the Rona. Never mind the vomit stained night bus. <laughs> I said bye, went outside and took a few steps to the taxi, I, I think. But that's the problem. I'm no sure. I wasn't paying attention to what I was doing and knew it's been four hours when all I can do is wonder what I could have done in that time. I've texted on my phone. It could have been more than ten minutes between leaving their house and getting in the taxi. But that's still enough time to kill someone and bury the body. <laughs> Sweet Mary Joseph and the wee donkey. <laughs> I didn't ask for these thoughts. They're like maggots. You split one and the next thing you know, a hunter appear, wriggling and squirming their way into your brain flesh. Someone tell me it can be an illness. There's no. You didn't just get maggots in your head. There's got to be rot somewhere. Shut up! I shout back at the bursting thought. I'll look at my phone. I must have gone to bed as soon as I got in. But what if I did even more damage before then? Oh, I feel sick and stand. I aimlessly wander around my flat and there it is. Out the windy, a big overgrown garden that's under lock and key belonging to the neighbours. That's the perfect place to plant a body if you want to be discreet. I'll look out the windy, searching it for any sign of a recent disturbance. There's not. Magic. Oh, then I mind the park up the road. It's awfully dark at night. London twinkles in the distance. The building's filled with mere CCTV than you can shake a stick at. But that doesn't exist in Zine 3. <laughs> you could do just about anything here, and no one would be any wiser. Oh, I have to ch check that wee park later. I walk into the bathroom at the thought. 
I'm no a violent person. I don't think. But you don't have to be one to kill. My pal works on death row in Egypt. She's a psychologist there. And I should have known better than to ask her what kind of bugger kills. They're all normal, she says. When people kill, they just snap. I'm as white as a ghost, and I fear there's one at my shoulder. My eyes fall on my arms. Without thinking, I start to take photos of them. I'm nearly a wee hang. If I've taught someone, there will be signs of a struggle. It looks clear. Magic. Ten minutes later, I photoed every angle on my body, funny and bumhole included. You can't be too careful. I sit down at my desk, ignoring the unread messages for work. Dodgy internet connection. That's been my excuse whenever summer comes up. My heart drops into my stomach when I scroll through the photos. Not so magic. This bruises on my arm. Twa. Fingerprint sized. Oh, I think the game's a bogey and I should just haul myself into the police. I find the non-emergency email address. Hello. I type before hinking as quickly as I can on my feet. There's got to be security cameras near enough my street. If I can just get the footage, I can check if I've topped some poor bugger. They'd have to pass at least one camera to get to the area. I can narrow down my list of potential victims. It's a big fucking game of guess who, and I've no idea if I'm in a player. I open another tab. How many security cameras in Clapham Junction? I type <laughs> into the Google. Is the answer? I go back to my email to the police. I was out last night and someone spiked my drink. I write. I'm scared. Someone assaulted me on my way home. I live at 8 Brown Park Lane. Can you check the CCTV in the area? I hit send. Magic! That's well believable. The police will feel sorry for me and wave their wand to start this. I force myself through my work. I need to check everywhere for this body the night. There's only so many places it could be buried. The police can give me CCTV as a backup. Time passes as slow as a day in the jail, which is something I may need to get used to. But I'm eventually on the train to Jimmy's estate. idea what I'll do if I find a body. I'll be as surprised as the next person. I'm five foot four and know the strongest of the bunch. I couldn't kill a man. It would have to be a wing or a slighter bugger than me. The 
couldn't have been many, if any, weans around at midnight. My magic keeps, keeps me safe. Every thought has a bit of truth to it. Why else would it pop into your head? Maggots pouring out of every vein and artery. Adrenaline focuses me. I film every possible burial location after a step after train. Gerdon after Gerdon after Gerdon. I'd be just as upset if it turns out that I've talked some poor cat or dog. Dog that got lost in the middle of the night. Dogs have been going missing a plenty since the roller dropped the hit that knee one and their granny asked for. Have you seen this dog? One poster reads. Did your family get a new pet during lockdown? Reward for safe return of Sparky. Poor Sparky. Lockdown was safe. I grew to love the wee prison that was my bedroom. Things could only go so wrong then and I didn't have to use my magic for anything but the net. You can do a lot of damage on there if you're no, no careful. It's a hot day. I was in such a rush to start searching that I didn't put socks on. My sweaty feet rub against my boots. But I can't stop filming. I can see Jamie's house. He'll think I lost it if he sees me wandering, but it's not like I've got a choice. I can't risk it. It'll go down as manslaughter. It has to. Oh, Jesus. The punk's hoaching my wings, and here I am with a camera. I keep it fixed on the ground. That's all that matters. The dirt. The magic. The park's bigger than I mind it being. I walk up and down, avoiding other folk as much as I can. The ground is soft enough to bury a body. There's mounds of overgrown grass. It's hard to tell if the soil below's been touched. Oh, I feel sick. I cast a brief glance at Jamie's flat. Where the curtain moves? Maggots. It's just the maggots. Flashes on my other kills go off like a paparazzi camera in the heat. All those nights out I've had. I could have done anything. He said I'm violent. I shake. My feet are blistered. It was self-defence, he said. You wouldn't stop hitting me? It was just a nudge. I was upset. But there's violence in me after a drink, that's a fact. It was more than just the magic voice. The maggots. I didn't think I could hurt a big man. But he said I did. I wish I could remember. What do you mean that folks just snap? I asked my pal on death row. 
here, they don't do white-collar crimes. They don't kill because they want money or anything like that. It's crimes of passion. Passion? That's why heaven, or so he said, again and again and again. Someone's clocked what I'm doing, but he looks away when we make eye contact. London's full of mare nutters than you catch on Soaky Hall Street at 5am. I hadn't worked out how to use magic back then. I mind back in Glasgow, uh, a couple having a domestic outside St Enoch Station. She got her tits out when he said no one else would want her. Big, droopy, long hangs. Indecent exposure. A crime if ever I saw one. But she was three sheets to the wind and had no idea. She said she was going him. The moment the bus was trundling away, her man tilt the hill street that she'd got the wrong one and laughed. The park quietens as the sun begins to set. I speed up. I'll need to finish soon if I'm going to have a chance of checking the one near my house and all. I run, powered by this weird magic that makes my anxiety wash over me like a wee beaten pebble on a beach. My phone runs out of storage just before I'm finished round one, I guess who? I take a deep breath. There's lots of folk around. It'll be okay. I'll delete photos of my granny that I know I'll never get back. Turns out you'll do just about anything to avoid a life sentence. Someone taps on my shoulder. It's the police. They got to the body before me. The maggots swarm, squirm, and I'm out like a, like a light. I come to her in the back of a police car. I start hyperventilating. There's sweeties popping out the glove compartment. I didn't mean it, I pant. I didn't even care who it was. I'm so sorry. The police's eyes widen. I look at their handcuffs, at their knives. Your friend's really worried about you, one says. What's going on? So, there's no body? The police look at each other. A body? One asks. Hi, a body? Please help. Have you any idea who they are? Just lock me up. No one is missing, the other says. You can't have a crime without evidence, you know. I start greeting. The maggots pause. He said I was violent. I see the truth spilling out of me. He said I hit him, but I didn't mind it. He hit me, I mind that. And he said it was self-defence, and I'm scared. What if I really am a monster? I was just being careful. I had a drink in me last night, and I can't mind everything. We're going to get you the help you need. I'm so sorry. I don't want to waste your time. It's okay, 
the other poorly smiles. If we didn't help people like you, we'd just be sitting around eating donuts all day. <laughs> it's okay, I repeat. I've no said those words since he put his hands round my neck. <sighs> donuts. Maybe one day, when magic is just a memory, I'll get tarted up like one and no get the fear. Thank you, Lois. Our second story of the evening will be The Trial of Goodwife Cutler by Ken Tower, read by Silas Hawkins. Ken attended City University of London's short story course in 2019 and is a regular contributor to Inside Croydon. Leavening its award-winning reportage of local government going on with whimsical articles on walks, arts, pubs, and pandemics. He teaches law, politics, and history. Silas continues the family voiceover tradition. He is the son of Peter Dalek Hawkins and Rosemary Emergency Ward 10 Miller. Favourite voice credits include Summerton Mill, Latin Music USA, and podcasts for the Register. Silas! The Trial of Goodwife Cutler. <coughs> the Trial of Goodwife Cutler by Ken Tower. When, on St. Crispin's Day, 1416, in the fourth year of the reign of Henry V and the first anniversary of the Battle of Agincourt, Goodwife Mary was brought before the Assizes in Guildford. Her sex presented the court with something of a conundrum. In English common law, maiming was the malicious rendering of the victim less able to annoy his adversary. Now, typically, this might involve dismemberment or the gouging of the eyes. Mayhem, as it was then called, was a serious felony. In those days, when Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy were respected legal authority, the sentence called for the loss of the like part. Membrum pro membro, as the uh, learned justices would have it. The particular act that she had allegedly committed upon her husband was the removal, by means of his own eating knife, of his privy member. <laughs> Should she be found liable for this egregious act, it was difficult to see how she could be made to forfeit what she did not have. That, members of the jury, is a river we shall have to cross should we reach it, said Justice Sir Edward de Vere. Meanwhile, your responsibility as jurors is to investigate by interrogating those witnesses you think fit. The jurors, twelve good men of the hundred, sat in silence. They all knew Goodman John Cutler of Clapham. Prior knowledge was, 
in those days a most desirable quality in a juror. That uh, John Cooper and John Taylor had both faced Cutler over matters of business in the civil courts was not considered a barrier to justice. On the other hand, the obligation to attend the quarterly assize in Guildford and to pay for bed and board while there was an onerous one. No one doubted that the trial would be a quick one and that Mary Cutler would soon learn her fate. De Vere asked the jurors to decide amongst themselves whom they would call for interrogation. After five minutes, the answer came back. John and Mary Cutler, in that order. Since John was in the antechamber of the court and Mary was under guard in Guildford Castle up on the hill, the proceedings were brought to order. The hunched figure of Goodman Cutler appeared at the door of the court, and De Vere, taking pity on him, invited him, contrary to established practice, to give both oath and testimony from a sedentary position. Cutler winced at the very thought of his own physical discomfort, shuffled across the well of the court, sat slowly down, winced again as he did so. In an age when few people had the means to be fragrant, Cutler was particularly ripe. Goodman Roger Little rose to speak on behalf of the jury. Aha, thought De Vere, the quiet one, desperate for his day in court. He found himself leaning forward, the better to hear Roger Little. The question was a disappointment. The first question usually was, Goodman Cutler, can you tell us in your own words what happened to you on the morning of the 15th of the instant month? <laughs> so obviously an attempt to ask the sort of question jurymen were supposed to ask. As Roger took his seat, his face radiating smugness, De Vere knew that he would have to intervene several times to keep this case on track. In your own words? Why did they think it was necessary to say that? Cutler was already speaking and looking, as he did so, from juror to juror. Oh, I woke up in pain. I was in our bed and my good wife was standing over me. Lie still, she said. You have a wound. I looked down and saw wadding and bandaging round my thighs and privy area, stained dark with blood. Much afraid, I asked her what had befallen me. I remembered nothing. I began to shake. Roger was on his feet. Were you drinking the night before? My wife, sir, is a Brewster. There is always beer. Uh, good beer, too. Yeah, good enough to sell to the taverners down at the bull. I take it down there myself. Uh, she's uh, oftentimes angry with me for drinking so much of it. Says I lay violent hands on her. But I say she is a liar. So, yes, sir, I was drinking the night before, and I say, what of it? It is my good wife, not I, who is on trial. Roger's face fell. De Vere came to his rescue. Goodman Cutler, you have denounced your wife for mayhem. The jury has a duty to investigate your claim. You will not question them. 
They will question you. Is that understood? Cutler nodded, and Little, emboldened, pursued his line of inquiry a little faster this time. You have stated that you remember nothing. I put it to you. You have no standing, therefore, in a charge against your good wife. Perhaps someone else committed the mayhem. Indeed, it is not unheard of that a man commit mayhem on himself. Is that not so, Mr. De Vere? De Vere nodded. Goodman Little, I think perhaps you refer to the case of William of Chiswick last year and his attempt to avoid service in France by cutting off his fore and middle fingers so that he could not draw his bow. Hmm. <laughs> we struck the same two fingers from his left hand, a condign punishment. But, a good man little, am I to understand that it is the jury's case that Goodman Cutler has committed mayhem upon himself in order to avoid what? The uh, service he does to, he owes to his good wife? De Vere turned his attention to the plaintiff. Goodman Cutler, you have conjured up a vision of yourself lying abed, bloody bandages covering your private parts, your wife standing above you, apparently ministering to you. You asked her to tell you what had happened since you did not know. Now, please tell us what followed. Oh, I see... Good wife, what the fuck have you done? <laughs> and I saw my eating knife in her hand. She said, look well, husband, and moved to the table by the bed. There on was a cloth package wrapped in butcher's twine. She cut the twine with my knife and opened the package in front of my eyes. Your privy member, she said. Oh, oh I felt suddenly sick. Overwhelmed by the enormity of my loss. Oh, what my own good wife had done. I closed my eyes and lowered my head. I could not look at the evidence of my own unmanning. And then she called the dog. My dog. Dog comes in. She puts the cloth on the floor. Dog goes there, picks it up. Out the door, and that's the last I see of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Goodman Cutler. You, you, you may remain seated in the witness box. I think we must hear from your good wife. Bailiff, bring her in. Goodman Little, the court has identified the woman who is being taken into the dock as good wife Mary Cutler Brewster of Clapham. You will recognise her as such, so please proceed directly to discovery. There was a palpable murmur of appreciation from the jury at de Vere's oiling of the wheels of justice. Roger took this to heart and formulated his questions carefully. Good wife Cutler, we are here to find out the truth of what happened on St Crispin's Day at your home in Clapham. Why did you cut off your husband's member and feed it to his dog? Was it because he beat you? No, better, thought De Vere. A leading question might actually get an answer. He beat me, yes, most days. He's a pig of a man, sir. 
but I did not cut off his cock. That night, that night he came in, in roaring, he was going to give me a kicking, but he collapsed on the bed, and I gave him a great kick in the bollocks, and he didn't move at all, so I kicked him again. And again, nothing. And then I fell to thinking I would teach him a lesson. I took his eating knife from his belt. I do not have one of my own, sir, even though my husband is a cutler. And I, and I, I pricked him about his prick and the sack that hangs below. And, and, and I packed it up tightly with bandages and gave him a few, a few more kicks there just to get the blood aflowing and, and give him the sense of having nothing down there but pain, sir. I had a nice shiny bit of pig's gut from Goodman Butcher little bluish thing about the right size and shape and I wrapped that up and I let it sit by the bed while he slept. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know the rest. He only looked at it for a second and the pain and the bandages convinced him that it was, was his cock in the cloth. <laughs> and then in the dog. Conversations broke out around the court, including among the jurymen. Uh, and Devere had to call for silence. Bailiffs! he cried. Take this goodman and make him stand. Uh, goodman Cutler, am I to believe that you have not removed your bandages in the past four days? Has not been curious? Has not visited at the very least a nurse or a surgeon? Has not visited the privy? Oh, no, sir. I was ashamed to show myself to anyone. Afraid I might bleed to death if I removed the bandages. I have become used to uh, letting the waters soak through, sir. Well, or the other passages without impediment, sir. My bandages are as yet unbeshitten. Bailiffs, uh, bailiffs, uh, hold him and, and remove his hose. Uh, little, you must now investigate like a good juryman. Take this goodman's eating knife and cut away those blood-sodden bandages. Yes, sir. Do it now. Little performed his task, trying unsuccessfully to hold his breath throughout. With all of his will, he resisted the urge to gag as he raised between thumb and forefinger... Uh, the fold of bandage that covered the private parts of Goodman Cutler. <sighs> In Clapham, the following week, at the sign of the bull, an alehouse owned by Goodman Ralph Taverner, who regularly bought Goodwife Cutler's ale, the drinks were free, and a skilful eavesdropper might have spent a profitable hour. Oh, they stink, said John Cooper as he lifted his drink from a barrel of his own making. Oh, the smell is like nothing else. Oh, he poisoned the air with a coat. The sight of it besides, all shrunken and wizened. Oh, a sorrier thing I never saw. <laughs> Twill never stand proud again. By the Lord Jesus, I feel almost sorry for him. More ale, Roger? asked Goodwife Cutler, and little acquiesced as Mary <coughs> poured more ale out of a stone jug. I hear you have moved in here, Goodwife Cutler. 
that you now live under the sign of the bull. But uh, does not does not good man Tavana have a wife? He did, came the reply. But she is here no longer. It appears she was serving more than just good ale to my husband. <laughs> Where is he now? asked Roger, the practised but now somewhat inebriated jury. Oh, he left. She knew what Ralph would do if he found out. And he did find out. I do not think he will see her again. That night, as she lay in bed, Mary Cutler felt free for the first time. She smiled and fell into a deep sleep as she held Goodman Ralph Taverner tightly in her arms. Thank you, Silas. And so on to our third story, and the last one before the intro, which will be Set for Life by Xenia Alejandra, read by Kelly Wolf. Xenia is a Bolivian writer who worked as a banker in former life. Nowadays, she spends most of her time writing, watching TV, analysing TV, and talking about TV. Occasionally, she even gets paid for some of these things. Kelly is an American poet, performer, journalist and activist. She performs as Coco Millet with Poetry Brothel London and she also founded the Little Versed Poetry Collective, produces and hosts the Propaganda Poetry radio series and is poet in residence at Cabaret Karma, where she creates monthly events. Kelly! second floor office is preposterously swanky. I don't think I've ever been at a place of business above the third floor before, but it seems the higher they get, the more luxurious they must become. This particular office looks like something out of a TV show about sexy lawyers saving the world one pro bono case at a time. But this is not a law firm, law firm. And I am definitely not an impossibly well-dressed lawyer. I'm currently wearing a maroon polyester suit that I bought for a Hillary Clinton costume back in Halloween 2016. My shoes are equally unstylish and full of scrape marks, which I tried to cover up with a Sharpie, but it turned out uh, to be purple highlighter. <laughs> I shift in my seat, noticing dust from my soles have left a conspicuous stain on the white rug. Everything in this place is white. The floor, the sofas, the lamps, 
the porcelain teacups next to the vintage samovar. I wonder how they must manage to keep everything so clean and then conclude that uh, people with dirt on their shoes probably don't come here often. <laughs> One of three receptionists, all wearing scant white dresses, walks toward me with the swagger of a runway supermodel. I actually turn to verify that there isn't a wind machine right behind me. Madam G will see you in 10 minutes, she tells me, and then struts back the way that she came. Okay. I'm here for a job interview. What kind of job, you might ask? I wouldn't be able to tell you. My friend D referred me. In a very... opaque way. He sent me a text with a time and a place and the promise of a job that would set me for life. He is very enigmatic, my friend, so I don't question it. And I'm desperate for a job, but as soon as I stepped into this deluxe office, I knew I had no business being here. My career path hasn't precisely been leading to skyscrapers where Giselle lookalikes offer you rose-infused water. Back in college, I used to moonlight as an assistant makeup artist at a funeral home. And that was the best job I ever had. I never graduated. After dropping out, I started writing obituaries for a small newspaper thanks to my almost degree in journalism but the paper went bust marking the death no pun intended <laughs> of my mortuary tribute career hard times and odd jobs ensued dog walker florist school bus driver grave digger you know the usual college washout stuff <laughs> Whatever this job is, I'm certainly not qualified. The reception doesn't have any magazines or TV screens, so I'm forced to entertain myself by contemplating the series of events that brought me here. It all started as I was getting ready to jump off a bridge. No! No, 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 not like that. I was in the bungee jumping queue, which was already fortuitous, given that I'm afraid of heights and hate physical activity. However, on that very morning, my boyfriend had dumped me with the excuse that I was not adventurous enough for him. Yeah, he was the type of guy who expects his girlfriends to double as kayaking partners. <laughs> anyway, as luck would have it, someone left a leaflet for bungee jumping on my windscreen. I was bitter enough and crazy enough to think that it would be a good idea to show him just how adventurous I could be. Okay, I regretted it as soon as I got in line. Noticing how nervous I was, the guy in front of me said that I should never regret living life to the fullest. Uh, this didn't help matters. I was just 
just about to turn around and leave when somebody behind me said, I think life is overrated. <laughs> Death. That's where things get exciting. That's the great unknown. And that is when I met Dee. All the bungee jumpers in waiting glared at him in silence as if he had said something too bizarre to merit an answer. But I thought his statement made more sense than anything I had ever heard. And so I stayed and jumped off a bridge, which was scary for a few seconds and then had zero impact in my life afterwards. I really do not understand why people do these things. Somebody died that day. The cable just snapped. And I was already gone before it happened. Dee and I, however, have been friends ever since. Curiously, Dee doesn't have other friends. Everyone finds him fascinating. How could they not? He can quote Alan Poe discuss Hitchcock movies, geek out about the Sandman comic books. He's also so well-versed in sports, music, and finds the best cat videos on YouTube. <laughs> and yet, most people avoid being around him. Except for me. I guess that's why he recommended me for this job. The ten minutes are finally over, and the receptionist announces, Madam G is ready for me. She leads me to a corner office with a divine view of the city skyline, partly veiled by the sea of clouds. A tall, striking woman is standing by the window. Madam G, I assume. She gets behind her desk and motions for me to sit. I try not to stare, but it is difficult. Her face is so perfect, so symmetrical. It's almost unsettling. I find myself trying to estimate her age and realize it's nigh on impossible, I could just as easily believe she is 50 or 30. Thank you for coming today, she says. You've come highly recommended by... Uh... D, I provide, realizing for the first time that I don't know his full name. <laughs> D, <laughs> she repeats, amused. That old rascal. Retirement, he says. I ignored him after the first century or so, but he must be serious if he's nominating a successor. He has talked to me about wanting to change careers, so this is not exactly a surprise. But he never told me any details about his job. All I know is that he helps people relocate. Moving company, I assume, but I was never too sure about that. In truth, I always thought he might be involved in something illegal or 
illegal adjacent. <laughs> He's always so cagey about his job. He travels a lot and he appears to have an unlimited income. I really don't want us to stop being friends, so if this turns out to be a, a drug dealer, I'd rather not know. <laughs> Madam G produces a copy of my CV from somewhere in her desk. I notice she's highlighted my mortician job, obituary writing, gravedigger, and florist. My job history has a theme, I realize, and it's uh, quite morbid. But, I mean, she doesn't seem put off by it. Instead, she nods and mumbles something about relevant experience. <laughs> I really hope Dee isn't a hitman. I'm ready to come clean and tell her I have no idea what is going on, but before I can say anything, she hands me a card with a figure written on the back. Starting salary, she says. Enough to set you for life. I'm sure that is what Dee promised. And I just stopped listening after that. This much money? <laughs> it could change everything. I need to figure out a way to get this job. Can you start right away, Madam G asks. We need you to start right away. D has already submitted his resignation. I look up from the piece of paper. <laughs> Wait. What, do you mean <laughs> I have the job? Yes. <laughs> Just like that? Well, Dee thinks you are the successor, and who am I to disagree? I leave these types of decisions to the entities involved. I have a hands-off approach, you know? Free will and all that. I am aware that this is too good to be true. There's always a catch. But uh, let's put it this way. If I were a cartoon, I would have dollar signs in my eyes right about now. So I nod and I don't ask any questions. You will have a probation period, however, she adds. We need to make sure you're a good fit for the team. Of course. I mean, having a team means that there will be somebody to tell me what to do, at least. You'll be working in a team of four, and you will need to be well-coordinated. You'll be the busiest one, of course, so just make sure any planned wars, natural disasters, and epidemics are brought to your attention early on. I start nodding mechanically. Sure. Wait. What? <laughs> she leans forward, resting her elbows on the desk. How's your riding skills, by the way? Uh, as in, like, bike riding? 
<laughs> she bursts out laughing. <laughs> Dee, you didn't mention that you were funny. He certainly isn't. We can use some more humor, though. A little dark comedy doesn't hurt. Am I right? Bike riding. She shakes her head. Sorry, sorry. Just had an image of you four riding around on your little bicycles. The four bike men. Doesn't really have the same impact on me, does it? I meant horses, of course. Oh, I say, desperately trying to figure out what kind of a job involves epidemics and horses. <laughs> eh, below average, I'm afraid. Oh, I'm sure you'll get the hang of it. That was a yes to an immediate start. Am I right? Sure. Okay. He will take care of the formal handover and give you all the necessary equipment. Here is the checklist. See you at the quarterly check-in. One of the receptionists materializes out of nowhere and properly escorts, or rather, herds me towards the lift. At ground level, I take a look at the checklist for all the things that I'm supposed to receive from D. Black stallion, cloak, unk, a, a sight in good condition. Oh, what the hell did I get into, I wonder. Second later, I get hit by a bus. I wake up and I'm wearing a shockingly comfortable black cloak. Nearby, the most resplendent black horse neighs while looking in my direction. Hey, someone says from behind. I turn around and I see Dee leaning against the wall. Okay, something is off about him. His clothes, they're all white. I stare at him and then down at myself and I remember the bus running and ramming into me. D, am I dead? Yes, he says with an I am sorry look. And also, death. <laughs> I know I should be panicking, but I mostly feel Bittersweet, bittersweet relief, like when your train finally gets canceled after being delayed for two hours. <laughs> My journey, yeah, is over, even if I didn't reach what I thought was my destination. I have so many questions.
questions, I say. All will be covered in orientation, he says. But I suspect you will be a natural. And what about you, I ask? You're no longer What does that make you? He shrugs in between jobs. <laughs> I've been thinking about reincarnation lately, but I'll need some retraining. I sigh, feeling overwhelmed. You'll be okay, you know, he says with confidence. You're one of those people who never quite figured out life. But I think you'll do just fine with what comes beyond. <laughs> Being dead doesn't trouble me, I say, honestly. It's just... <laughs> I don't know if I want to spend the rest of eternity surrounded by misery. He gingerly puts a hand over my shoulder. Don't you see? It's quite the opposite. You will be there when they realize it isn't over. Huh. I never thought about it like that. Of course not. It's the best kept secret. Even the optimists and the superstitious have their doubts. He turns around to leave. Oh, and D. And I realize I am D now. <laughs> Just for the record, I told you the truth. You were set for life, whatever little was left of it. The end. to wear your mask as you leave your tables, we wouldn't want you to be recognised. <laughs> the bar is open and you have about 20 minutes to create as much mayhem as you see fit. Welcome back after the interval. Did you get up to much mayhem? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of half-hearted mayhem. Um, it's time for the infamous Lies League book quiz. <laughs> And Katie is going to tell you which books you could win. Ooh. That was half-hearted. Do it again. Ooh. That's right, howling. The children of the light, how sweetly they sing. 
so our first book to win is the inimitable Warlock Holmes. <laughs> My great ritual. Uh, I confess to having taken a little peek, and this is very funny. If you ever wondered how much better Sherlock would be if people could hurl hellfire at each other, this one is for you, says Starburst magazine. And if you like it, there's two others in the series. So get this while you can. Uh, Spain sci-fi author has written some pulp uh, excitement. Crikey, look at that cover. You probably can't see, but uh, it's very exciting. Blood on the Mink is the title. <laughs> and the tagline, I think you'll enjoy this. The money was counterfeit, but the danger was real. <laughs> Irresistible, isn't it? Uh, yes, always my favourite selection at the Halloween uh, book quiz. Um, this is The Edge, a relics novel by Tim Leburn. And this is about a secret and highly illegal trade in mythological creatures and their artefacts. Certain individuals pay fortunes for a sliver of a satyr's hoof, a griffin's claw, a basilisk's scale, or an angel's wing. Embroiled in the hidden world of the relics, creatures known as the kin, Angela Goff is now on the run in the United States. A little bit of sci-fi, a little bit of fantasy. And Robert Brockway's The Empty Ones uh, combines the uh, nihilism of punk rock with the excitement of the paranormal, uh, doesn't get better than that, <laughs> a nasty, freakishly, and haphazardly funny horror story, say Kirkish Reviews. And finally, Grandmaster of Horror Kim Newman has written the English, uh, sorry, an English ghost story, uh, which M.R. Carey said is immersive, claustrophobic, and utterly wonderful. Oh, and uh, Pat Cadogan, Hugo and Arthur C. Clarke award-winning author, says Kim Newman now owns the genre. I want to read everything he writes. And English Ghost Stories, yours if you're clever enough. Right, well, those are the books. These are the questions. Now, as usual, we can't see you as you hide in the shadows. So please, if you do know the answer... Then give us your most enchanting, hey presto, and wave your hand in the air with a magical flourish. Would you, would you like to practice that? Yeah. One, two, three. Hey presto! Think you know what we're doing. So the first question. What long-armed creature was the Unseen University's librarian trans... Hey, presto! Oh, oh, oh. A cheeky call from the access table. Yes, sir. He was an orangutan. He was indeed. <laughs> he was well done. Silas, our actor who read Good Wife Cutler, is incredibly well-read and wins a book at every one that he performs. But what, which one would you like, Silas? Oh, I think Warlock Holmes. Warlock Holmes. Oh, I thoroughly recommend it. Well done. Second question. Occult novelist Dennis Wheatley wrote Mayhem in Greece. But which of these is not one of his novels? The Devil Rides Out. The Devil is a Gentleman. Or To the Devil, a Daughter. Hey, Presto. Oh, yes. The Devil is a Gentleman. 
is the yeah. correct answer. And do you know? Do you know what that is the title of? I don't on the it's his biography. Ah, oh. oh. trick question. Okay, which one would you like? I'll go for the uh, Kim Newman. <coughs> Kim Newman's English Ghost. Third question. Which American author wrote a Wizard of Earthsea? Oh, yes, 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 you're so excited. Yes, correct. Well done. The edge, the empty ones, blood on me. Oh, God. The empty ones. The empty ones, a tale of punk rock and the uncanny. Fourth question. I know, right? Which Neil Gaiman novel and TV series set in London below features such... Neverwhere! Oh! <laughs> oh, yeah! Hey, never presto, wear. Neverwhere! Oh, yeah, it is. Almost designed. It's always Neverwhere. Another act of that I was never there. She's right. She is entirely right. We cannot deny her. We cannot deny her that. Love on the mix. Well done. Which which book are you going to go for? I'm going to give it to Katie and Liam to decide what I need to read because I need to read Love on the Mink. Blood on the Mink. You have Blood on the Mink. Thank you. I'll never marry that man. I promise this a lie. One book left. One question. Actually, we have more than one, but you are a smart audience. Fifth question. The title of Margaret Atwood's Shakespearean retelling of The Tempest, Hagseed, (laughs) refers to which character? It's correct! Well done. And anybody who didn't win a book, the liars are selling their anthologies at the front desk for only a fiver. Which includes the award-winning uh, Weird Lies, which is an anthology of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and slipstream. So if you feel bookless and sad... Don't go home without a book. Don't go home without one. And so on to these stories of the second half. <coughs> the first of which will be Mr. Merlin by Sally Wilde, read by Stephen Butterton. Sally has been writing for a while, and this is the first of her stories that's had a public airing. She really hopes you enjoy it. Stephen trained at the London Centre for Theatre Studies in 2002, finishing his training with a run at the Acton Pals at Germain Street Theatre. He then spent time in fringe theatre and student film productions before leaving London in 2007. He now lives in Hastings, drowning in his day job as a vet. With very little time left over for acting and the written world, he is delighted to be taking to the stage once more for Liars League, as are we. Stephen! Mr. Merlin by Sally Wilde. It's not my real name. It's just my stage name. Written on both sides of my little sky blue van. 
Mr. Merlin, it says, in huge ornate lettering. And then underneath, in block capitals, children's parties, birthday parties, Christmas parties, office parties, anything. <laughs> Alice used to say that the anything at the end looked a bit desperate. <laughs> she was probably right. Alice isn't a real name either. Names have been changed to protect us all. She always said I should stick at it if it made me happy. It didn't matter that we had no money, so I stuck at it. I did other work, of course, work that actually paid the bills. But I soon realised that this was the only thing I'm any good at. And it made me happy. And if I was happy, Alice was happy. And if Alice was happy, I was happy. Isn't that great? Sorry, I've had a beer. Which I don't usually do, not when I'm working. Never mix booze and magic. An unwritten but very important rule. Please ignore me if I get a bit sentimental. Don't worry, though. When the show starts, I will be as professional as ever. It's called magic, but it's just tricks. Clever, complicated, silly little tricks. Not real magic. We tried real magic, me and Alice. Specifically, we tried to do that one magic trick that really counts, the one where... Two people get into bed, and nine months later, a third person shows up. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> but we could never get it quite right. The first part was fine, in case you're wondering. No problem there. <laughs> but the second bit, the payoff, the big reveal, it just never quite clicked. Three miscarriages. And Alice wasn't getting any younger. But then suddenly, she was pregnant again. We didn't tell anyone, not this time, not at first. I'm thinking all of, all of this while listening to Mr Landers. Call me Stuart. Stu. Of course, kids these days don't want magic, do they? Not the old-fashioned magic, anyway. Another beer? I call it classical magic. Rather than, oh, you know what I mean. They want street magic. All that stuff on YouTube. That's all they do all bloody day. Bloody YouTube. God knows what it's doing to their precious little brains. Don't let it get you down, though. I think it's brilliant. There are still people like you out there doing the kind of thing you do. Like I say, it's more classical magic. Oi! You two! Stop trying to bloody kill each other and leave that bloody cake alone. I long to tell children to stop bloody killing each other. I long to tell children to leave that cake alone. The beer is good and cold. It doesn't last long. I'm quite thirsty. Someone, I have to assume it's Mrs Landers, grabs Mr Landers' elbow. I was just talking to the, um, the magician. Then he says to me, sorry about this. And she drags him away, avoiding my eyes. She knows. He doesn't. But she's about to tell him. The kitchen smells of today's food, and yesterday's food, and the whole history of food, lovingly prepared, day after day, year after year. And on the kitchen table, a big square cake with the number 10 piped on in blue frosting. All alone, I get myself another beer, distant shouts and laughter, and whispers and children running about somewhere, unseen. 
I don't mind being alone, which is lucky, isn't it? I check my watch. 15 minutes till I'm due on stage. Yes, today I'm giving them the works. The skill is in making them think they're cleverer than you. Get the opening trick slightly wrong, let them laugh and jeer, or worse, and then you bow a little. Acknowledge your failure, but then you reveal, wow! You knew you, what, you, what you were doing all along. The kids laughing and say, no, mister, it was actually the six of diamonds, and everyone's laughing, but then you say, the six of diamonds? Oh, well. Anyway, do me a favour, will you? Take your shoe off, don't worry about the smell. That gets them laughing with you again. And then you say, what's that? And the kid looks in his shoe, and there it is, and you say, hold it up for all the boys and girls to see. And of course, it's the six of diamonds in his shoe. From that moment, they are yours. How did you do that? Magic. Actually, I haven't done that trick before. I've practised it a lot, but never actually done it before. Is it a good idea to open with that? You've got to do it sometime. This beer is pretty good. Okay, so that's the opening, but then what? Do I bring the rabbit out of the hat after the thing where it looks like I've chopped my finger off, or before? Should I even do the finger guillotine at all? If no one's crying after the first 15 minutes, then go for it. The only absolute certainty is the climax, which is always the same. Yes. In the climax, Mr Merlin will make the birthday boy disappear. Flash of light, puff of smoke, loud bang, the cabinet collapses outwards, all four sides falling to the floor of the stage, and... Amazing! The birthday boy is gone. Even Mr Merlin looks a bit confused. He stands over the empty space, wafting his hands with the smoke as if the boy might still be in there, somewhere. But there is no birthday boy. Puff! There is nothing at all. Looking for me? They all turn around, and there in the background is the birthday boy, sitting happily with a slice of birthday cake in his hand, and the crowd goes wild. Take a bow, Mr Merlin. You've earned it. The father joins me in the kitchen again. There's obviously something on his mind. Do I want a cup of tea? No. Am I okay? Yes. I wonder, what were the exact words his wife used when she told him? I can imagine his shocked, embarrassed, awkward reaction, his wife insisting quietly but firmly that he should have a little word with me. And here we are. He is having a little word with me. You sure you're okay? I mean, seriously, it's fine if you wanted to cancel. The kids will cope, somehow. He's trying to smile. I wonder how old he is. I wonder how rich he is. I wonder how happy he is. I wonder how scared he is. The birthday boy. What's his name? How old is he? And is today his actual birthday? Excellent. See, I need him for my final trick, where I make him disappear. I can't do it, do it without his help. I know that an hour ago he would have made a joke about me making his son disappear for good. And how much would he have to pay for that? And we'd have a good laugh about it. Now there are no laughs, no jokes. Oh, I'll just go and see him. Looks like we're out of beer. Sorry. Everything hums in the kitchen. Everything fades a little for a little while. 
If only I could... Hello, Mr Merlin. Here he is, the birthday boy. Ten years old today. Wonderful. Perfect. Ten years old today. What an age. We shake hands. Dad exits, glancing back at me as he goes, and I know he isn't going far. He'll stop just out of my sight, try his best to listen, to make sure... What? To make sure I'm not telling his child the terrible thing. She died in childbirth. The baby died too, of course. I tell him I need his help. He looks at me, perfect brown eyes, wide with delight and intrigue. So, when I call out your name, you come up onto the stage and we'll do the whole thing dead easy. I knew you were a clever kid as soon as I saw you. I always say that. You should see some of the kids I've tried to explain this to before. I always say that. And if you forget anything, don't worry, I'll guide you. Showtime. And despite of everything, the show must go on. The grown-ups herd all the kids into the big room at the back of the house. Open plan. Big French windows facing the garden. Lovely house. Lovely children. Lovely everything. Lovely everyone. The beer buzzes with me now, mixing with a tiny pang of stage fright before I bound out in front of all the kids. All the lovely, expectant, bored, unruly, silent, ugly, beautiful children. Half-hearted applause. No problem, I'm a professional. I'll soon have them in the palm of my hand. They will be mine. There are a few grown-ups at the back of the room now, the birthday parents among them, watching, wary. How many of them know? How much do they know? The card in the shoe. The dismay when I get it wrong. The nervous laughter. But wait, can you just take a shoe off for me? Yes, you. In the front row, don't worry about the smell. Laughter. The right one, please. Not the wrong one. Can you take whatever that is out of your shoe and hold it for all the boys and girls to see? And there it is. The Six of Diamonds. Gasps. (laughs) Applause. Cheers. And the rest of the show is a dream. Perfection. Best I've ever done. Handkerchiefs out of sleeves. Rabbits out of hats, flowers, glasses of water, more cards, smoke and mirrors, the tools of my little trade. I'm having a great show, and so are they. And already it's time for my final trick. Yes, and for this very special trick, I need a very special assistant. Is it someone's birthday today? He looks so excited, his moment has come at last. He runs out of the throng and joins me up at the front. A little bit of banter between him and me, a few laughs... Then I wave my magic wand and open the door to the cabinet, and he steps in. Can you blame me for what happens next? If you were me, what would you do? And anyway, this, this disappearing thing is only temporary. If it's only a trick, so please don't blame me. I wave my magic wand, I say a bit of the old mumbo-jumbo, there's a loud bang, a flash, a puff of purple smoke. The cabinet collapses outwards, all four sides slapping to the floor. The birthday boy is standing there, looking confused. At least one little girl in the audience bursts into tears. 
How long should I stay like this? Until the nervous laughter turns into something else. Until someone comes up onto the little stage and says, What the? How long should I stay here, wherever here is? I wonder what they'll do with my kit, the tools of my trade. I wonder how long my van will sit outside their house. Will someone come and tow it away? Or will it sit there for years, sagging slowly, the tyres going down, moss collecting in crevices and gaps, the letters on the side fading in the sunshine? Perhaps it will become a grim tourist attraction. See this van? Remember Mr Merlin? He went into that house, did his magic act, and then for his final trip, he just... Stephen, our penultimate story of the evening will be The Pumpkin and the Vampire by Hannah Hall, read by Miranda Harrison. Hannah lives and writes in Newcastle. Her story, Red Planet, was published by the Mechanics Institute Review and her story, Two Penny Bargain, was selected for Alternative History Fiction magazine. Her unpublished novel, Power of Humanity was also long-listed for the Mislexia Novel Award. Miranda is an actor and voiceover artist whose theatre highlights include Viv in, uh, Viv in Norfolk, Florrie in Skin, Solo and Ensemble in the Virginia Monologues, Bread and Rose's Theatre, Nurse in Romeo and Juliet, and her TV includes three pilot episodes of UTU with recent voiceover work including Plague Songs, a political satire on COVID. Voiceover clients include Bletchley Park and BBC Children in Need. Randa also runs new writing event Page to Stage London, where pieces are performed as rehearsed readings with an industry panel giving feedback on the night. Miranda! and the Vampire by Hannah Hawke. So, said the vampire, tying his cape, we're walking, I presume. We'll take the car, the pumpkin said, with barely a pause. Frowning, the vampire turned to the mirror to study his friend. Really? You think that's a good idea? After last year? Definitely, said the pumpkin. He dabbed his makeup with a tissue. If this party's as wild as the one last year, we'll be way too pissed to walk back afterwards. We're taking the car. I think I see a flaw in your logic, said the vampire. He wiped a trail of blood from, the, from his lip to his chin and smiled at the gory effect it created. Who's going to be driving? I will, said the pumpkin. His forehead, satisfactorily thick with orange face paint, 
He fished his hip flask from beneath folds of felt and took a healthy swig. The vampire stared at the pumpkin for a very, very long time. Then he turned back to the mirror. No further dialogue passed between them for at least half an hour. Somehow, despite this, the pumpkin and the vampire came to a mutual agreement that it would, in fact, be preferable to walk. It was not too far, after all, if he went straight on, instead of taking the left at the corner shop, and cut through Prince's Park. They're close, the off-licence, the pumpkin remarked as they made their way down the street. Seriously, what's this in its place? A vegan cafe? Avocado toast? What even is that? The vampire stayed silent. But his silk-gloved fingers tugged and twisted his plastic cape in such a way that most mortals would consider him nervous. Everything's changed, murmured the pumpkin. Have you noticed? I don't know how long we've been inside, but everything's changed. As they emerged from the park and crossed the road to the apartment buildings, the vampire finally spoke. Too pissed to walk, indeed. Take the car, indeed. It was that attitude that got us into this situation in the first place. What situation? The vampire did not respond. A car swept past, coming dangerously close to scraping the backs of the vampire's legs as they stepped up onto the opposite curb. Stupid drunk drivers, the pumpkin muttered. The vampire said nothing. Shortly, they arrived outside a run-down student building. Here, they stopped. They looked the place up and down. No lights were on. No music was playing. The only sign of potential life was a bunch of flowers, limp and drying, tied to a lamppost by the gate. Otherwise, the area was dead. The pumpkin frowned. It was here, right here. Chewing his lip, the vampire considered. What was the date on the invite? He asked. October 31st, of course, tonight. The vampire held out a silk-gloved hat. The pumpkin looked confused for a moment. Then he understood, and after digging for a while in his folds of felt, finally removed a crumpled black piece of paper and presented it to the vampire. The vampire scanned it closely. Then he groaned. What's wrong? The pumpkin looked at him quizzically. What's wrong? With a groan, the vampire thrust the invite back at the pumpkin. 
Oh, this is last year's invite, you idiots. <laughs> oh. The pumpkin looked again at the building. Well, that's too bad. You'd have thought they'd throw another one, though. I mean, you know, with tonight being what it is. Must have stopped them after the accident, the vampire said. Not an anniversary you want to commemorate with a fancy dress party. He sighed again, turning to the pumpkin. See, this stupid mix-up is one of the reasons why you should quit drinking. The other reason being? The accident, of course. Accident. The pumpkin thought, I, I don't remember the accident so well. Hardly surprising. You were driving, I was in the back. I didn't get a steering wheel in the forehead. Slowly, the pumpkin nodded. Mm. I guess you're right. It didn't take them long to agree that a second trek through Prince's Park, under the weight of such dampened spirits, would be too much to bear. So they tried to hail a taxi. But while several passed by that night with their lights glowing, none stopped. Of course, it was obvious to the pumpkin and the vampire why this was. They had both known for quite a while, but neither wanted to admit it. As dawn broke over Prince's Park, a figure appeared in the distance, black hooded, Without looking right or left for traffic, it stepped into the road and continued forward until it reached the lamppost with the flowers tied to it. There, it stopped and laying down its scythe, extended a skeletal hand towards the pumpkin and the vampire. Come on. Party's over for you, the figure said. Better luck next year. Thank you, Miranda. Before the final story of the evening, some notices. The Magic Circle has just elected its first female president, Ooh. and it's about bloody time. If you are a writer or would like to be one, then consider submitting to our Christmas feed, friends and family. The deadline is Sunday the 7th of November, and the event will be most probably held here at the Phoenix? It will, on the 14th. Yeah. There you go, on the 14th of December. I have it in writing. Um, if you want to double-check that, go to the website, where you'll also find past events and, once the dust settles, future themes. And so, our final story of the evening will be Time, Gentlemen, Please, by Stephen Cahoe, be read by Oliver Yeller. Stephen is a recovered drug addict from Preston, 
and splits his time between London and the North West. His degree in English is from Goldsmiths, and he studied creative writing at City University of London. Time, gentlemen, please, is the second thing he has ever written, inspired by true events. Oliver is an actor from Essex and a graduate of both the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama and the National Youth Theatre of Great Britain. Oliver has performed extensively across the London stage, appearing in plays the National Theatre, the King's Head Theatre, the Southwark Playhouse and Queen's Theatre Hornchurch. Oliver! Time, Gentlemen, Please, by Stephen Keogh. Dracula, Lord of Darkness, Scourge of Romania, Drinker of Blood and Defiler of Virgins, Prince of the Night, Terror of the Ages, Beastmaster of Many Forms and Dread Count of Transylvania, since time immemorial, licks his razor-sharp incisors in a fiendish fashion and laughs. <laughs> He's just rolled a 20. <laughs> it's games night down the Red Hellhound, and the fortnightly league game of Dungeons and Humans is in full swing. Placing an exquisitely painted lead figurine on the game board with a confident thwack, he intones in a devilishly deep baritone. I go through the door. <laughs> Dracula's proud of his character. He's been playing the same one for a year now. A level seven IT consultant from the kingdom of Croydon. <laughs> called Colin. Special skills include turning it off and on again and talking about GDPR. <laughs> Top score on the 20-sided die means a successful saving throw versus technology, which in turn means the swipe card We'll, work, we'll open the doors. Campaign-wise, the party have now all but escaped the fabled glass-fronted lair of the office worker and are approaching the mythical, trendy-looking coffee shop and juice bar on the other side of the road. <laughs> the quest? <laughs> to secure a coffee apiece and one of the better-toasted sourdough sandwiches is now nearing its climax. Lord Voldemort whose turn it is to play careers advisor, looks up from behind the rule book with a perverse grin. Well, a more perverse grin. Uh, to be fair, his resting dark lord face is already pretty perverse. <laughs> squashed up nose, and teeth and all. <clears throat> Did you check for mid-level managers? He <laughs> <laughs> hisses. All eyes turn to skeletal. I hate my character class, complained Skeletor. All I do is eat cakes and read other people's emails. <laughs> Disgruntled, he grabs his ram's head scepter and strides off towards the bar. Who wants a drink? The Red Hellhound is an old-fashioned Victorian boozer, a vanishing breed even on the streets of Hades. Games night takes place in the cosiness of the snug. Dracula and his cohorts huddled together on mahogany benches upholstered in green leather. The paraphernalia of the game is strewn across the brass tabletops supported by cast iron legs. Did you check for mid-level managers? Insists Michael Gove. 
doing that thumb thing for emphasis. Michael's character is a level 13 politician. He always plays himself. Special skills include taking cocaine and being so annoying, enemies are forced to attack him first. No, I didn't. But it was He-Man's fault. Audible tuts ripple around the bar. Nemesis blaming is frowned upon in the underworld. Everyone knows you're here because you've been defeated by your nemesis, or nemeses. But it's a full part to blame them publicly. Well, not too embarrassing for Skeletor, who everyone agrees has a pretty kick-ass arch-enemy in the shape of He-Man. <laughs> but a different story for Voldemort, who was defeated by a pretty best spectacle geek along with his ginger sidekick. Oh, and Emma Watson. <laughs> At the bar, from too deep, an impatient Skeletor casts a weary eye socket over the top shelf. Everyone's a gin wanker now, he moans. To anyone who will listen, and there are plenty who will, the pub is packed. This being the night before Halloween, most demonic folk don't have work tomorrow. It's bad form to terrorise humans while they're busy dressing up and terrorising themselves. There's an unpleasant buzz about the place. Cigar smoke and raucous laughter of the maniacal variety fills the air in the great two-listed central hell hotspot. Across from the snub, Corella Deville is losing another game of pool to Saddam Hussein. <laughs> Stubbornly refusing to remove her Dalmatian fur coat, she only ever pots the spotted balls, even when playing stripes. <laughs> Judas leans on the jukebox, silver coin in hand, and surprise, surprise, sympathy for the devil blasts out for the fourth time this evening. <laughs> Why always the thumb, Michael? insists Frankenstein's monster, sat wedged into a corner and stooping to avoid the lampshade. Well, focus groups told us pointing was too pejorative. Uh, the thumb is a happy medium. It means I really, really mean this, but not in an angry, pointy way. <laughs> he resettles his spectacles, then continues. It's a bit like the word pledge. It sounds like a promise, but it isn't. <laughs> so when we break it, nobody minds. At least we get less angry faces on the focus group survey. Turning his rot-swollen head as quickly as the bolt will allow, the errant doctor's creation regards the politician with a thoughtful, appraising air. Why are you in hell, my good? Um, the focus group, it, it, it was made up of members of the British public, you see, and, uh, well, did we check for mid-level managers? <laughs> you didn't. This is he whose name was mentioned a little bit earlier. <clears throat> You are accosted by a vice president of statistics and his minions. Unperturbed, Dracula slurps down the last of his artisan craft blood and wipes the throth from his aristocratic chin before slamming the schooner down on the table with a diabolical grin. <laughs> I talked to them about GDPR. <laughs> Voldemort shakes the die. It clatters, totters, tumbles and rolls before settling on a lonely two. The save versus boredom is failed. The vice president of statistics and his associate vice president minions fall asleep. The party advances. They can almost smell the coffee. The end of level boss is now in sight. Lord Voldemort places a 1 to 16 scale replica of a hipster down on the board behind the coffee bar. 
The figurine is painted in unconventional beige and dressed from the waist up like a French sailor. <laughs> the barista with the elaborate facial hair flexes his tattoos for the showdown. Michael looks afraid. Dracula worried. Even Frankenstein's monster has never seen jeans that tight. Dice in hand. Our anti-heroes steal themselves for the final battle. Dracula prepares his opening salvo of a rather involved mocker order, whilst Michael gears up for some serious smashed avocado on toast, when suddenly, with a bang and a crash and a wallop and a thump, the saloon doors open of the red hellhound. The jukebox stops. Pool balls halt. Cigarettes burn unattended in demonic mouths that hang agape. It's Sauron. <laughs> you know the big eye from Lord of the Rings? One of the Maiar, servant of Melkor. The rest of the high fantasy crew are close behind, and they look decidedly half-cut. The Night King staggers, arm round the shoulders of Saruman, and Baron Vladimir Harkonnen can barely keep afloat as Melmoth, their token goth mate, wanders in behind, a jug of scrumpy sloshing at his lips. For fuck's sake, mutters Dracula. Not that lot again. The high fantasy crew are very cliquey. In their view, the rich and detailed worlds from which they come, along with the lofty epic scale of their off-serialised struggles, makes them a cut above your average role-playing vampire, uh, the interesting narrative structure of Dracula notwithstanding. <clears throat> you know, told entirely by a series of letters and journal entries, Stoker had achieved something remarkable, never attempted by your Tolkien's or your George R.R. R. Martins. Still, try telling that to Sauron. 54,000 years old, with a hankering for a single malt, he frowns menacingly at Dracula and his role-playing butts. A giant, lidless, eyebrowless frown. One snug to rule them all. Utters <laughs> his sidekick, Saruman. It's well known the seats in the snug are the comfiest in the bar. They are our seats, shouts Saruman. The Night King glares angrily in support. The snug is nowhere near large enough to accommodate both groups of ne'er-do-wells, so something has to give. Dracula isn't for moving, but the high fantasy boys are accustomed to getting their own way. I advise you to bend to the will of my master. <laughs> Saruman's poison tongue coated in honey. Or else what? Skeletor stomps back from the bar. Plonking himself down on the edge of the bench, he hands round the Jaeger bombs. <laughs> A comedic cartoon buffoon he may be, but gumption he has by the bucketful. Leaning his bony elbows on the table, biting his bony thumb in the direction of Sauron, he lets his bony tongue run free. What's you gonna do? Make me some jewellery? Give us all a ring to wear? Quaking in my boots. How's your death perception, you one-eyed prick? <laughs> You are most unwise to insult my master. Saruman's voice, soft as silk. With a resigned sigh, Dracula puts Colin back in his velvet-lined keepsake box, downs his shot and stands. He don't want to fight and ruin his best cape, but neither does he want to give up his seat. Unhurried, he removes a delicate leather glove, finger by undead finger, and then slaps Sauron with it, square across the cornea. <laughs> Adieu, sir. We shall include our seconds. 
that. The stage is set for mayhem. The forces of evil on one side and the forces of also evil on the other. <laughs> Sauron summons the Nazgul. Dracula, the children of the night. The Night King orders his whites to advance and Michael makes a really, really serious pledge to cut educational funding to Mordor if they don't back down. A battle to shake the foundations of the earth seems inevitable when suddenly, with a smack and a hammer and a crash and a boom, the salon doors of the Red Hellhound swing open again. The jukebox stops. Paul Balls halt. Cigarettes burn. Unattended mnemonic mouths that hang agape. It's Buffy. <laughs> She's wearing the brown tan skirt from season two, episode 15. <laughs> <laughs> and the silver buttons up the front, sort of stop that uh, stops mid-thigh. Kind of A-line, but not really. She has the matching boots on too, same colour, that come up mid-calf. Tonight, however, she's paired it with a yellow cardigan from season three, episode two. <laughs> it's cute in a kind of girl next door way. How she dressed pre-spike. <laughs> Her eye shadow is of the palest lavender. And her long golden locks are done up in braids and... Anyway, it's Buffy, yeah? <laughs> the vampire slayer. The girl monsters have nightmares about. Howdy, gang. Sorry I'm late. Total mare getting here. Do you know they only have one guy operating the ferry on the River Sticky? <laughs> the villains swap confused glances. Um... The river that sticks? Well, more confusion. And Buffy does that faux perplexed thing that her face does and shrugs. Ah, oh, Buffy, excellent. I was wondering if you got my message. Michael pockets his blackberry inside it was over. Dracula arches an eyebrow. Explain yourself, Michael. I did warn you not to trust me, Drac. <laughs> I'm not angry, Michael. I'm just... Disappointed. <laughs> Upward, says Buffy. Our heroine pulls out a stake and winks. It's like the wink she does to Cameron, season 7, episode 16. Uh, you, you know when Andrew is recording the battle against the first for posterity, and each one of them gets a slow motion montage in the kitchen, deliberately over egged in a cheeky watch this kind of way. It's that wink. <laughs> Outnumbered and obviously outgunned. It only takes a moment for the forces of evil, and also evil, to forget their differences and join forces and become really, really evil. <laughs> Lesser demons finish their beers and skulk away. The bartender hides. Skeletor suddenly remembers he's left the oven on and escapes through the window with a cacophonous crash. Somersaults are somersaulted. Stakes are driven. Quips are quipped and capoeira kicks are and probably performed by Sarah Michelle Gellar's stunt double. <laughs> when the dust settles, the Slayer is victorious. The Dungeons and Humans board is the only thing that remains. Buffy rolls the dice. Twenty. <laughs> she checks the rule book. Ooh, chocolate sprinkles. Yummy. Waving hell a fondish goodbye. She makes an icky face at Gove before pigging, backing him off into the sunset. Balance is restored to the netherworld once more. Kind of. <laughs> Thank you, Oliver. And...
that's it. The witching hour is upon us once more. We'll be sticking around until they force us to ungather. So do lurk or linger if you can. Before that, please give our magical actors and our Bring the Mayhem authors one last tumultuous round of applause. (laughs) 